Best known for its links to the witch trials of 1612, which saw eight women and two men executed by hanging for witchcraft. Ever since, this particular location in Lancashire has been linked to paranormal occurrences blamed on the witches who were accused and convicted of practising their dark arts, right here. Every Halloween, ghost hunters flock to this location, for it has been said by many to be one of, if not the, most haunted place in the world. Tonight, Join me as we dare to head up Pendle Hill. Welcome to episode 12 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we head to Lancashire, England, and ask the question, just how haunted is Pendle Hill? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Pendle Hill has an air of mystery about it. An isolated hill in the Pennines, the summit of which is 557 metres, or 1,827 feet above sea level. It falls short by 53 metres, or 173 feet, of being classed as a mountain. It's a relatively easy climb to the top, and when you reach the peak, you are rewarded with stunning views on all sides across the Lancashire countryside. You can see the towns of Nelson, Paddyham, Burnley and Colne, and the borough of Pendle, which takes its name from Pendle Hill. 
On days when the sky is particularly clear, you can see Blackpool Tower around 40 miles to the west. The name Pendle Hill has very interesting origins. In the 1200s, it was called Pen Hill, which is the combination of the Cumbrian word pen, meaning hill, and the Old English word hill, spelt H-Y-L-L, also meaning hill. In more recent times, the modern word hill has been added to what had become Pendle when the original meaning of the name had become lost. So Pendle Hill actually means hill, hill, hill. The hill surrounded by beautiful wilderness is popular all year round with ramblers, nature lovers and, of course, ghost hunters. Those who aren't here in search of the spooks that Pendle Hill has become synonymous with are attracted by the challenging, yet stunning, long-distance walks, such as the 43-mile-long Pendle Way. The long history of the hill is apparent, with a Bronze Age monument known as the Devil's Apronful, dating back up to 4,000 years. The Devil's Apronful is made up of two barrows close to one another. Barrows of this type are often found in Bronze Age cemeteries grouped together. People report that this is definitely a burial site, but these cairns have never been formally excavated, so what is inside them is a complete unknown. However, barrows of this nature elsewhere in Lancashire have most commonly had urns inside them, so it's not unrealistic to think that they are in fact burial sites. The first of these barrows is a ring-bank cairn, about 10 metres wide. Sadly, most of the original stone has been disturbed to build a modern cairn on the edge of the monument. The second barrow is an 18 metre wide embankment. This represents the disturbed cairn and its hollow centre. If these are burial sites, it's clear that the deceased must have been very important to have been laid to rest on such a magical site. These barrows have a local legend attached to them, which gave them the name the Devil's Apronful. In this particular legend, the devil himself was walking from Accrington with an apron full of stones, which he was planning to throw at Clitheroe Castle. Why the devil was wearing an apron, and why he felt the need to throw stones at the castle isn't clear. He stepped from Hambledon Hill to Crag's Farm, where he left his footprints on a rock. When he was walking over Pendle Hill, his apron string broke, and the rocks that he was carrying spilt onto the ground, forming the devil's apron full mound. Near to the sites are the footprints referred to in the legend, and are said to have been left by the devil himself. In reality, it's probably Bronze Age rock art, but we can't be sure of this. Pendle Hill is best known today for the witch trials of 1612. The story of the Pendle witches is a particularly famous example of the witch trials taking place across England during the Middle Ages. It was perceived to be such a problem at the time that a series of legal acts had to be enacted to legally punish anyone found guilty of being a witch. At the time of the Pendle Witch Trials, the Witchcraft Act, originally formed in 1563, was in place. This introduced the death penalty for any sorcery used to cause somebody's death. In 1604, the Witchcraft Act had been reformed to include anybody who'd made a pact with Satan. The Trials of the Pendle Witches of 1612 is arguably the best recorded of any of the witch trials of the 17th century. Thomas Potts was the clerk to the court at Lancaster, and he wrote an account of the witch trials. He completed the work on the 16th of November 1612, but before it was published, one of the two judges, Sir Edward Bromley, reviewed the account and made some revisions, declaring it then to be truly reported 
and fit and worthy to be published. Pott's record of the witch trials were published in 1613 as the wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster. But because of the involvement of the judges, some historians have suggested that the book is heavily biased to paint the judges and the legal system in a positive light, rather than be a true, honest account of what happened. Also, it appears to be written as a verbatim account, but this isn't the case. Potts wrote the book while reflecting on what had happened months earlier. As you'll hear, ten witches were hung after being found guilty of witchcraft, and nine of them were hung together, which was very unusual for the time. Ten local people had been murdered, and the twelve Pendle witches and their witchcraft were blamed for all of these deaths. Ten of these witches were tried at Lancaster Assizes on the 18th and 19th of August 1612, alongside others such as the Samuelsbury witches, who were three women from the Lancashire village of Samuelsbury, Jane Southworth, Janet Bailey and Ellen Bailey. They were accused by a 14-year-old girl called Grace Sowerbutts of practising witchcraft. One of the Pendle witches was tried at York Assizes on the 27th of July 1612, and the 12th and final accused witch died whilst in prison awaiting trial. Of the 11 Pendle witches who went to trial, nine women and two men, one was found innocent, but the other ten were found guilty, and they were sentenced to hang by their neck until dead. It has been estimated that all of the English witch trials between the early 15th and early 18th centuries resulted in fewer than 500 executions. This series of trials accounted for more than 2% of that total. Interestingly, my hometown of Newcastle-upon-Tyne saw 15 supposed witches, 14 women and one man, hung on Newcastle Town Moor between 1650 and 1686. Two families accounted for six of the Pendle witches, and each of these families were headed up by a woman in their 80s. Elizabeth Southerns, known as Demdike, was the head of one family. Her daughter, Elizabeth Devis, and her grandchildren, James and Alison Devis. Devis was most likely pronounced Devies, or Davies, but we will say Devis throughout, due to the uncertainty. Then there was Anne Whittle, known as Chattox, and her daughter, Anne Redfern. The others accused were Jane Bullcock and her son, John Bullcock, Alice Gray, Janet Preston, Alice Nutter and Catherine Hewitt. The Demdike and Chattox families were accused mostly because of the accusations levelled against one another. Both families were making a living claiming to be healers and accused the other due to a grudge and to eradicate the competition. At the end of the 16th century, the area in which the Pendle witches lived was considered by authorities to be fabled for its theft, violence and sexual laxity, where the church was honoured without much understanding of its doctrines by the common people. The nearby Wally Abbey had been closed for the best part of a century, due to the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII in 1537. This was a decision that did not go down well with the local people, who were largely deeply religious, and the Abbey had exerted a powerful influence over Pendle. Even though the Abbey was closed, and the last abbot, John Paslew, was executed for high treason for his part in the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, which was a protest against Henry VIII's break from the Catholic Church. The people of Pendle largely remained faithful to their Roman Catholic roots. With Queen Mary on the throne in 1553, they returned to Catholicism. Mary restored papal supremacy in England, abandoning the title of the supreme head of the church, and reintroduced Roman Catholic bishops, as well as beginning the slow reintroduction of monistic orders. 
Mary also revived the old heresy laws to secure the religious conversion of the country. Believing in a different religion to the Queen was regarded as a religious and civil offence amounting to treason. As a result, around 300 Protestant heretics were burnt in three years. When Mary's Protestant half-sister Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558, Catholic priests once again had to go into hiding. But in remote areas such as Pendle, they continued to celebrate Mass in secret. On Elizabeth's death in 1603, she was succeeded by James I. James himself was fairly tolerant in terms of religious faith, but the gunpowder plot of 1605, which was an attempt by Guy Fawkes and other Roman Catholic conspirators to blow up the Houses of Parliament, resulted in the reimposition of strict penalties on Roman Catholics. Many years prior to his ascension to the throne, James I had been convinced that he was being plotted against by Scottish witches. After a visit to Denmark, he had attended the trial in 1590 of the North Berwick witches. They were convicted of using witchcraft to send a storm against the ship that carried James and his wife Anne back to Scotland. In 1597 he wrote a book, Demonology, instructing his followers that they must denounce and prosecute any supporters and practitioners of witchcraft. In early 1612, every justice of the peace, called a JP, in Lancashire, was ordered to seek out and list all those in their area who refused to attend the English church and take communion. This was considered a criminal offence at that time. The JP for Pendle was a man called Roger Nowell. In undertaking his task, Nowell spoke to John Law in March 1612, following a complaint by Law, who was a peddler from Halifax, that he had been badly injured as a result of witchcraft. This complaint would start a chain of events which would see the Pendle witches identified and charged with witchcraft. Law explained to Nowell that near Trawden Forest, he encountered Alison Devis, Demdike's granddaughter, who was 18 or 19 at the time. She asked him for some pins. 17th century metal pins were handmade and relatively expensive, but they were frequently needed for magical purposes, such as in healing, particularly for treating warts, divination and for love magic, so essential to a healer, or as some would say, a witch. Alison claimed that she was trying to buy them, but John Law's son Abraham claimed that she was begging for them. In Potts's book, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancashire, it is written that the devil appeared in the likeness of a black or brown dog with fiery eyes, which Alison's sister, Janet Devis, later claimed was a spirit familiar of Demdike, her grandmother, named Ball. This beast spoke twice in English, offering to lame John Law. A few minutes after the encounter with Alison Devis, Law stumbled and fell, apparently lame. There is a suggestion that he suffered a stroke, but this is not proven. He managed to get back to his feet and reach a nearby inn. Initially, Law made no accusations against Alison, but a few days later his son Abraham took Alison to visit his father, and she confessed to what she had done, and she asked him to forgive her. Alison Devis, her mother Elizabeth, and her brother James were summoned to appear before Nowell on the 30th of March 1612. Alison immediately confessed that she had sold her soul to the devil, and that John Law had called her a thief, so she had asked the devil to lame him. Her brother James stated that his sister had also confessed to him that she bewitched a local child. Elizabeth denied that she was involved in witchcraft, but she did say that her mother, Demdike. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. 
Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Who had been known in the area for over 50 years as being a witch, had a mark on her body that could only have been left as a result of the devil sucking her blood. Alison was asked by Nowell about another family who had been talked about as being involved in witchcraft, a family headed up by a woman by the name of Anne Whittle, or Chattox. There was bad blood between the families, dating back to the previous century when John Devis, Alison's father, had been told to give Chattox £8 or 3.6 kilograms of oatmeal each year, or his family would suffer. He was terrified of Chattox, so did as she said. That was until 1600, when he didn't hand over the oatmeal, and in 1601, John died. On his deathbed, he said that his sickness had been brought on by old Chattox because he had failed to pay her for their protection. In the same year as John's passing, a member of the Chattox family broke into Malkin Tower, the Devis's home, and stole goods worth £1, the equivalent of roughly £125 today. Alison told Nowell that Chattox had murdered four men, by way of witchcraft, as well as killing her father. Whether this was motivated by revenge, or as a way to potentially rid themselves of their competition, we will never know. Following this, Demdike, Chattox, and Chattox's daughter Anne Redfern were summoned to appear before Nowell on the 2nd of April 1612. Both Demdike and Chattox were blind and in their 80s, and both confessed willingly. Demdike said that 20 years earlier she had given her soul to the devil. Chattox said that she had given her soul to a thing like a Christian man, as he had promised her that she would not lack anything and would get any revenge she desired. Anne Redfern, Chattox's daughter, made no confession, but Demdike said that she had knowledge of her making clay figures which contained human teeth and human hair. Another witness, a local called Margaret Crook, came forward to testify against Redfern. Her brother had fallen sick and died following an argument with Redfern, and before he had slipped away, he said that Redfern was to blame for his illness. Based on the evidence and confessions that he had obtained to this point, Nowell committed Demdike, Chattox, Anne Redfern and Alison Devis to Lancaster Jail to be tried for causing harm by witchcraft. The Pendle witches taken to trial may have numbered just four, but Elizabeth Devis organised a meeting at Malkin Tower, home of the Demdikes, on the 10th of April 1612, which was Good Friday that year. James Devis stole a sheep from a neighbour to feed the meeting party. Those who attended were friends of the family and those sympathetic to the situation that Demdike and Alison Devis were in, being held in the jail, awaiting their fate. Word of the secret gathering reached Roger Nowell, and he chose to look into it. On the 27th of April 1612, an inquiry was held before Nowell and another magistrate, Nicholas Bannister, 
to determine who had attended and for what the purpose was of the gathering at Malkin Tower. Demdike's granddaughter, nine-year-old Janet Devis, told of how the meeting at Malkin Tower had been a witch's sabbat, and they were plotting to blow up Lancaster Castle. As a result of the inquiry, eight more people were accused of witchcraft, arrested and committed for trial. James and Elizabeth Devis, Alice Gray, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John and Jane Bullcock and Janet Preston. Preston didn't live in Lancashire, so she was sent to her home county's jail in Yorkshire, where she would be trialled at the York Assizes. The other seven were sent to Lancaster jail to join the four already imprisoned there. The trial of the Pendle Witches came alongside the trial of others accused of witchcraft. There were the Samuelsbury Witches, Jane Southworth, Janet Brealey and Ellen Brealey, the charges against whom included child murder and cannibalism, Isabel Roby from Windle, who was accused of using witchcraft to cause sickness, and Margaret Pearson, who was facing her third trial for witchcraft. This time she was accused of killing a horse. Janet Preston was the first to be tried at York Assizes. Her judges were Sir James Altham and Sir Edward Bromley. Janet was charged with the murder by witchcraft of a local landowner, Thomas Lister of Westby Hall, to which she pleaded not guilty. She had already appeared before Bromley in 1611, accused of murdering a child by witchcraft, but she had been found not guilty. The most damning evidence against her was that when she was taken to see Lister's body, the corpse, and I quote, bled fresh blood presently in the presence of all that were there present after she touched it. According to a statement made to Nowell by James Devis on the 27th of April, Janet had attended the Malkin Tower meeting to seek help with Lister's murder. She was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Her execution took place on the 27th of July at York Tyburn on the Knavesmire. The most famous criminal who met their end at the gallows here was Dick Turpin, and the site of which today is next to York Racecourse. I actually investigated the site in 2011, when writing my book Ghosts of York. The remaining Pendle witches were tried at Lancaster Assizes on the 18th and 19th of August 1612. Although Elizabeth Southerns, old Demdike herself, died in prison before she could go to trial. The judges were Altam and Bromley, the same judges who had sentenced Jen and Preston to death the previous month in York. The prosecutor was Roger Nowell, the man who had been responsible for collecting the statements and confessions from the accused, and gathering the evidence against them. A key witness for the prosecution was nine-year-old Janet Devis. It's interesting to note that her age is very much up for debate, with almost all sources claiming this to be her age, but some historians in recent years have suggested that she was more likely 11 or 12. Either way, this was a very young witness. Having someone so young testify would not have been permitted in any other criminal trial in the 17th century. However, King James had suspended the normal rules of evidence for witchcraft trials. As well as identifying those who had attended the Malkin Tower meeting, Janet also gave evidence against her mother, brother and sister, essentially condemning her nearest and dearest to death. Anne Whittle, known as Chatox, was accused of the murder of Robert Nutter. She said she was not guilty of the crime. However, she had confessed to Roger Nowell, and this confession was read out to the court. A man named James Robinson, who had lived with Chatox and her family 20 years earlier, testified against her. He said that Nutter had once accused Chatox of turning his beer sour, 
using her magical powers. He added that she was widely known to be a witch. Despite her confession to Nowell almost certainly being as a result of torture, she broke down in the courtroom and admitted that she was indeed a witch, and she was guilty of these crimes. She begged for God to forgive, and for the courts to take mercy on her daughter, Anne Redfern. Chattox was found guilty. Anne Redfern, like her mother, was accused of the murder of Robert Nutter, but there was little evidence against her, and she was acquitted of these charges. However, she faced a second trial, and a second charge for murder, of Robert Nutter's father, Christopher. She pleaded not guilty. The main piece of evidence against her was Demdike's statement made to Nowell, where she said that Redfern had been making clay figures, and specifically clay figures of the Nutter family. Other witnesses were called, and all said that Anne Redfern was a witch. They said she was more dangerous than her mother. She maintained her not guilty plea, but she was found guilty. Elizabeth Devis was charged with the murders of James Robinson, John Robinson, and conspiracy to murder Henry Mitten, alongside Alice Nutter and Demdike. Elizabeth pleaded not guilty, and Nowell brought out his main witness, Elizabeth's nine-year-old daughter, Janet. When Janet was asked to give evidence against her own mother, Elizabeth shouted and screamed and cursed her own daughter. Janet was in tears. The judges had Elizabeth removed from the courtroom, and Janet gave her evidence without her mother, the accused, being present. Janet told the court that her mother had been a witch for three or four years. She also said that her mother had a familiar, who appeared in the shape of a brown dog, Janet claimed to have witnessed conversations between this beast and her mother, in which the familiar had been ordered to commit a number of murders. James Devis, himself one of the accused Pendle witches, also gave evidence against his own mother, saying he had seen her making a clay figure of one of the victims, John Robinson. Janet's testimony, due to her age, wasn't taken at face value by the judges. Indeed, the Salmsbury trio of witches had been found innocent when their 14-year-old child accuser was discredited. Judge Bromley arranged an identity parade to test Janet, as well as trying to trick her into identifying fictional people, but Janet was correct on each and every occasion. Whether Janet Devis's testimony was what she believed to be true, the result of some inexplicable wish to destroy her own family, or the expert coaching of the Pendle magistrates and or the prosecutor, her testimony killed her mother, and as you're about to hear, her own brother. Janet testified against her brother, James Devis, who had pleaded not guilty to the murders by witchcraft of Anne Townley and John Duckworth. Janet said that she had seen her brother asking a black dog that he had conjured up to help him kill Townley. James also had confessed to Nowell, and this confession was read in court. This, combined with Janet's testimony, was enough to find James guilty. Alison Devis, who had started this entire chain of events when she encountered John Law and was accused of causing him harm by witchcraft, had evidence given against her by John Law himself. As soon as he was brought into the court, she fell to her knees and confessed to everything, sealing her own death at the gallows, as this was an easy guilty verdict for the court. Jane Bullcock and her son John Bullcock were accused of the murder by witchcraft of Janet Dean, both denied that they had attended the meeting at Malkin Tower, but Janet Devis identified Jane as being one of those present and said that John had turned the spit to roast the stolen sheep. 
the centrepiece of the Good Friday meal for the meeting at the Demdike home. They were both found guilty. The evidence against Alice Nutter wasn't particularly damning and she pleaded not guilty. She was accused of conspiring to kill Henry Mitten along with Demdike and Elizabeth Devis because Mitten had refused to give Demdike a penny. James Devis said that Demdike had told him of Alice's involvement and Janet Devis confirmed that Alice was present at the meeting at Malkin Tower on Good Friday. One school of thought is that Alice may have been on her way to a secret Good Friday Catholic service. She came from a devout Catholic family and two nutters had been executed as Catholic priests, John Nutter in 1584 and Alice's brother Robert in 1600. Despite the flimsy evidence against her, she was found guilty. She resolutely denied her guilt until the very end. Catherine Hewitt, known as Mould Heels, was accused of the murder of Anne Folds. Hewitt had attended the meeting at Malkin Tower with Alice Gray. According to the evidence given by James Devis, both Hewitt and Gray told the others at the meeting that they had killed a child from Colne, called Anne Folds. Janet Devis also picked Catherine out of a lineup and confirmed her attendance at the Malkin Tower meeting. She was found guilty. The final accused Pendle Witch and the other accused murderer of Anne Folds was Alice Gray. The detail of her trial, unlike the other accused Pendle Witches, is lost to time, as Potts does not provide an account of Alice Gray's trial. He mistakenly lists her as one of the Samlesbury Witches. What we do know is that she was identified by Janet Devis as being at the Malkin Tower meeting, and James Devis said that she admitted, alongside Hewitt, of killing the young girl. However, she was found not guilty, and was the only one of the Pendle Witches to walk away from the trials with her freedom and her life. Nine of the accused, Alison Elizabeth and James Devis, Anne Whittle, known as Chattox, Anne Redfern, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock and Jane Bullcock, were found guilty during the two-day trial, and they were hanged at Gallows Hill in Lancaster on the 20th of August 1612. Malkin Tower, the site of the infamous meeting which played such a major role in the witch trials, was demolished shortly afterwards. The location of it has been the subject of debate for many years, but is most likely to have been near the village of Newchurch in Pendle, or possibly in Blacko, on the site of the present-day Malkin Tower Farm. These days Pendle is famous the world over for the witch trials which occurred here over 400 years ago, and Pendle embraces this, with witchcraft featuring heavily in its tourism. Many shops carry witch and witchcraft related souvenirs, as well as witch-themed names. A brewery in nearby Burnley produces a beer called Pendle Witch's Brew, and there's a Pendle Witch trail running from Pendle Heritage Centre to Lancaster Castle, where the accused witches were held before their trial. A petition was presented to UK Home Secretary Jack Straw in 1998 asking for the witches to be pardoned, but it was decided that their conviction should stand. 2012 saw the 400-year anniversary of the Pendle Witch Trials, and Pendle marked the occasion with a series of events to commemorate the occasion, and remember those men and women put to death for witchcraft. A life-size statue of Alice Nutter by sculptor David Palmer was unveiled in her home village, the nearby village of Ruffley. In August that year, a world record for the largest group dressed as witches was set by 482 people who walked up Pendle Hill.
on which the date 1612 had been installed in 400-foot-tall letters by artist Philly Panford, using horticultural fleece. Pendle Hill, which dominates the landscape of the area, continues to be associated with witchcraft, and some have claimed, although there doesn't appear to be any actual evidence to support this, that Pendle Hill, due to its unsavoury history, links to witchcraft and its remote setting, became a location where dark rituals would be conducted, involving satanic worship. It is best known today as one of the most haunted places not just in Britain, but on the entire planet, and it attracts ghost hunters from across the globe every Halloween. Pendle Hill has become a mecca for ghost hunters, who visit all year round, but especially at Halloween, when a huge gathering of like-minded souls flock to the hill in search of the ghosts that are said to remain here, especially the Pendle Witches. Some believe that the spirits of Demdike, Alison Devis, Elizabeth Devis, James Devis, Chattox, Anne Redfern, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock and Jane Bullcock are still here. They may have died over 400 years ago, but they have not moved on. They haunt the hill, and they haunt the buildings and the villages nearby. Pendle Hill really came into the wider paranormal community's awareness at Halloween 2004, when it was the focus of Living TV's Most Haunted live special over three nights at Pendle Hill. Yvette Fielding, the presenter of the show, said it was the scariest show they ever did. And it's understandable as to why as members of the crew were actually hurt. Some were strangled by unseen hands, and Derek Acora, the show's medium, claimed to be speaking to Elizabeth Devis. She told him that she was one of ten spirits present with them, and none of them wanted the crew to be there. Acora was sacked from the show the following year, for allegedly being a fake. This was following the Creed Kaffer and Rick Edel's incidents. If you don't take the happenings on the show most haunted at face value, the three nights at Pendle Hill are still compelling viewing and are all available to watch on YouTube. The history of the witch trials has given the place an eerie atmosphere. But is that all it is? A spooky backdrop to a series of extraordinary events that occurred here over 400 years ago. The local people who call the area home don't appear to think so, as they go out of their way to avoid Pendle Hill after dark. Shadowy figures have been seen darting around, and peculiar noises described as the low growl of a beast. Some superstitious locals won't even talk about the witch trials. The witches are blamed for much of the paranormal activity, and many believe that the Pendle witches have returned to their meeting spot following their execution. But paranormal investigators have also claimed to have contacted children, and the spirits of those who have committed suicide here. Fully formed apparitions have been reported, as well as disembodied voices. Visitors have reported taken in the awesome view offered by the hill, stood alone in total silence, when they've heard a whisper right in their ear. There have even been several reports of UFOs over the top of the hill. 
There are many other places of interest in the surrounding areas that are all claimed to be haunted, such as Clitheroe Castle, Church Brow, Lower Wellhead Farm, Bull Hall Farm, Tyndale Farm and Wadow Hall. There are also a couple that have direct ties to the Pendle Witches. On August the 20th, 1612, the nine accused Lancaster witches were hung at Gallows Hill, where the Hanging Court of Lancaster had hung thousands of condemned people before. Gallows Hill can be found in Williamson Park, and is itself said to be an incredibly active location, largely attributed to the vast loss of life here. Barley Church in Pendle is a location largely overlooked by those who flock to Pendle in search of ghosts and ghouls. But it is here that the witches are said to have robbed graves, in order to get teeth and hair to use in their clay effigies of those who they wished harm upon. Dark shadowy figures have been reported moving around the graveyard late at night, but who these phantoms are is unknown. While researching this episode I got into a Twitter exchange about the book The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster, and I mentioned that I was working on an episode about Pendle Hill. I later received an email from Ryan Black, a guy from Manchester, and in this email he told me what he claimed happened to him when he dared to go up Pendle Hill alone after dark. I will read this email now in its entirety, but I want to stress that I don't know Ryan. He seems like a nice genuine guy, but the same as everything I tell you on these podcasts, it's for you to make your own mind up. Hi Rob, I saw that you're doing a podcast about Pendle Hill and I wanted to tell you what happened to me when I visited in April of 2020, after dark. It was the only time I've ever been and I won't be going back. We were in lockdown because of Covid and I was sick of being stuck in the house as I live on my own. I'd never really been into ghosts before this, but I was messing about on the internet, really bored, and I ended up watching a video on YouTube about the top 10 most haunted places in the world, and Pendle Hill was number one. I'm less than an hour away from Pendle, and I was so bored that before I knew what I was doing, I'd broken the lockdown rules and I was in my car with a torch on the passenger seat, off to Pendle Hill to look for ghosts. It was around 11pm when I got there, and it was really dark but I put my torch on and headed up the hill. I've never done a ghost hunt or anything, so I didn't really know what to do. So I just kept climbing and shone my torch around looking for anything moving about. It was pretty scary, as it's so far away from everything. I checked my phone to see what time it was and noticed I didn't have a mobile phone signal. I'd probably been walking around on this hill for about 30 minutes and I'd seen nothing. I hadn't even seen another person, but I guess we were in lockdown. Then I had something happen to me that gave me the biggest fright of my life. I was stood there, shining my torch around, when I felt breath on the side of my neck. I turned quickly, but nobody was there. It freaked me out a little, so I went back down the hill. I heard a noise behind me of a twig snapping, almost like someone was following me, but there was no one there again. I then heard a voice in my ear, as if someone was face to face with me. I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman, but it sounded like it said, Go. I ran away. I raced down the hill. Then something tripped me and I fell over making my jeans filthy and muddy. I couldn't see anything I could have tripped on, but I definitely felt my foot catch on something, almost like if somebody had put a leg out. As I looked around, I could hear what sounded like laughing behind me, more than one person laughing. I ran back to the car and drove home. I've never told anybody about that. I don't expect you to believe me, as you don't know me, and I could just be somebody messing about. But I know what happened. Ryan.
Thank you so much for joining me once again. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to Pendle Hill. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get access to exclusive episodes where you join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened. If you were to join today, there's three episodes waiting for you right now. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help people to find the podcast. I have a copy of my book, Ghost of York, up for grabs. If you'd like to enter, it's incredibly easy to do. All you need to do is follow me on Twitter and or Instagram. My username for both is HowHauntedPod. You'll get one entry for each, so you can enter twice by following on both. This competition will end on the 24th of December 2022, and the winner will be announced on Twitter and the first podcast episode after the closing date. Next time out, we're returning to a city we visited on two previous episodes of How Haunted, and this time we're going to look at a building that's terrifying by design. A place full of mannequins made up to repulse and scare. Actors dressed in suitably horrible costumes, telling tales of ghosts, murder and even cannibalism. Motion-activated creatures jump out at you should you get too close, and creepy sound effects set the tone. However, could this building really be haunted? Staff have seen shadowy figures and felt uneasy in certain areas. Things were so bad in 2001 that an exorcist was called in. Despite claiming to successfully have exorcised the building, reports continue to this day. I investigated this location in 2012 and had, without doubt, the most frightening experience of my entire life. I'll tell you all about it next week, when we dare to enter the Edinburgh Dungeon. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? How Haunted?